This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the UCSF Mini Medical School for the Public. Today we're going to be talking about the impacts of our changing climate on allergic respiratory disease as part of our series on the health emergency of climate change. Our topics for today include a review of allergies and allergic respiratory conditions. What are they and what do we need to know before we can start talking about the effects of climate on allergic respiratory disease? Is the warming of our planet affecting allergic respiratory disease? And we'll take a look at that from the standpoint of both pollens and substances, allergens that are not pollens. And lastly, we'll take a look at a few special considerations. So what are allergies and allergic respiratory conditions? Well, commonly people use the term allergies to refer to strong or excessive reactions that occur upon exposure to substances in the environment. So it's used very simply to mean strong reactions or unwanted reactions to something that seems like we must be allergic to it. But in fact, there's a medical definition for an allergic reaction that is a hypersensitivity response by the immune system specifically to a substance that generally poses no threat. So for example, if we're talking about an allergy to dog dander or dog saliva, generally we would expect to have no problem with that. But for reasons that are not yet entirely clear, occasionally our immune systems will think that suddenly dog dander is a big threat to our body and create a significant response to it. And we'll get into that a little bit more in just a minute. So importantly, we distinguish allergic reactions, such as itching of the eyes and watering due to grass pollen exposure, from irritant reactions. Um, An example of that would be that if I had a handful of pepper and I tossed it in your face, other than being mad, you would probably cough and sneeze and your nose would run. But you wouldn't say that you're allergic to pepper, right? So that's an irritant response, not a response on the part of the immune system. And irritant responses are a big topic of research now, probably related to nerve endings and neurologic responses. So we distinguish allergic reactions from irritant reactions. Now, globally, about 10 to 30 percent of the population suffers from some type of allergic rhinitis that we'll be defining better shortly. And over 300 million people around the world suffer from asthma. Asthma can be due to allergies, but not always. So peak atmospheric grass pollen levels do equate with visits to the emergency room for both asthma and wheezing. So we know that elevated pollen levels, for example, can really be associated with significant disease. Now I've included a couple of nice pictures here to help you understand how pollen occurs and why some plants are more allergenic, if you will, than others. So on the left, is a photo of a Tibicina plant, purple glory flower. And you'll notice that it has this beautiful purple color to it. And it has a little bit of a fragrance, not a lot. But the more colorful and the more fragrant a plant, the more likely insects are to come to that plant. And hence the term entomophilus pollination or pollinated by insects. So those types of plants don't have much of a need to spew out billions of pollens 
unlike the ragweed on the right, which is glorious in its own right, but in fact, it's not a beautiful color and doesn't necessarily have much of a fragrance to it. And so ragweed, along with a lot of other grasses, weeds, and some trees, will put out lots and lots of pollens so that they can be pollinated themselves. Um, that's something that you can use practically if you're trying to decide whether a particular plant might be allergenic or not. And of course, there are exceptions to the rules, but in general, the more colorful and the more fragrant a plant is, the less likely it is to be truly allergenic. So examples of respiratory allergens include pollens from trees, weeds, and grasses like we've just mentioned, but also dust mites, which are tiny critters, microscopic in size, that feed off of human and animal dead skin cells, and they love to live in a warm, humid environment. So there's no better place for dust mites to live than your pillow, where every night you shed a regular supply of skin cells and you breathe this warm, humid air. So your pillow is like a Hawaiian resort for dust mites. But that doesn't apply to you if you live in a really dry climate where the humidity is less than about 45 degrees or so. Molds, furry animals, and cockroaches are other examples of major allergens. Now, in our background picture here, you see the kitty cat on the left, which, yes, as you know, some people are allergic to cats. You can't necessarily get allergies from a stuffed animal like on the right, but if that stuffed animal has spent lots of time in the arms of a furry animal, um, that animal can carry cat allergen, and also dust mites, because dust mites go wherever there are people and animals. So when do these allergens actually occur and when might we be exposed? Taking a look at this calendar, you can see that dust mites, cat, dog, rodents, cockroaches, and molds can be present any time of the year. Hence the name perennial allergens. Some of them are present all year long, but some of them are off and on depending on a variety of circumstances. On the other hand, let's look at the pollens. Up at the top left, cedar, cypress, and juniper, a very common cause of allergic disease. It's a family of, of plants, of trees, and bushes. Many are used ornamentally. Many occur wild in nature. They occur a number of places around the planet and to a huge extent here in Northern California. And you can see that they might come out, the pollen might come out as early as late December or January. It's usually maximal in early spring around March, February, March, maybe April. And usually by May or June, it's pretty much disappearing. Oak and birch, which are major tree pollens and, and cause major problems with allergic respiratory disease, usually appear in March and or April in this part of the world. Ryegrass usually appears a little bit later. The pollens come out normally in April, often for the entire month of May, occasionally in June, depending on what's happening with the weather. And in contrast, ragweed, which is a major cause of respiratory allergic responses in North America and other locations, usually comes out in the fall, especially September, sometimes October. So if you are unlucky enough to be allergic to many of these different substances, you can see, especially in April, that you could be truly miserable with your pollen and critter allergies. So let's take a quick look at what an allergy is, how it actually happens. At some point in time, whether early in life 
or later in life, the immune system, for reasons we don't quite understand yet, decides that instead of ignoring an allergen, such as dog dander or dog saliva, decides that this must be an enemy that needs to be attacked and managed. And so the first step requires sensitization. And when the immune system makes this decision, it forms specific immunoglobulin E antibodies, here depicted in green. And these antibodies are now forever specific to recognizing antigens, or usually proteins, from dogs. And thereafter, these antibodies sit on the surface of immune cells, one example and a main example being mast cells, which sit at the surface of the inside of our bodies to the outside of the world. Hence, mucous membranes, such as our respiratory tract, have a lot of mast cells on the alert to look out for foreign invaders. And what happens then is that with a repeat exposure, the allergen, in this case protein from dogs, is exposed to these antibodies. And when they bind, reactions occur within the cell that result in release of a number of chemical substances, including histamine and leukotrienes. And you're familiar with antihistamines and maybe with some of our anti-leukotriene medications that help stop the reactions that occur as a consequence when these substances are released by mast cells and other cells that play such a key role in our normal immunity. So swelling, hives, itching, wheezing, cough, nasal drainage, these are all a consequence of excessive release and inappropriate release of these substances from immune cells that are responsible for allergic reactions. And examples of these conditions include allergic rhinitis, which has been commonly known as hay fever, facial allergy symptoms, congestion, drainage, itching, throat clearing. And if it's bad enough and that inflammation extends a little bit further inside, you can wind up with sinusitis and even facial pain, a lot of drainage, and recurrent sinus infections. So it's important to understand what our allergic triggers are and how we might be able to manage them. Conjunctivitis, which is the eye reaction that many people uh, seem to experience, especially with grass allergies and asthma that we've already mentioned is a cause of significant morbidity and even mortality. It's also the cause of food allergic reactions, uh, reactions to stinging insects, and even drug allergy can have this same mechanism of IgE-mediated immune responses. But today we're just talking about the allergic respiratory responses. So, Let's move on to the question of, is the warming of our planet affecting allergic respiratory disease? And we're going to talk first about pollens. So anyone who has allergies knows that daily weather determines our symptoms, whether it's raining or snowing, if it's dry or wet, humid, windy. We can predict sometimes what will be happening with our allergies just by the daily weather. And symptoms, as we know, vary by season of the year, depending on our specific allergies, our geographic location, whether we're indoors or outdoors, and what happens to be pollinating at that very moment. So it then raises the question, can we apply any of this information to looking at longer trends of climate change? So how can we determine if global warming is causing changes in how we experience allergic respiratory disease? 
This is the point in our talk where if we were all sharing a physical space in the classroom, I would ask you for ideas about based upon what you already know about what allergies are, how they work, how they can be triggered, and what's happening with our climate. How, how might we measure whether global warming is having an effect on allergic respiratory disease? Since we're not in a physical classroom, I'm going to intuit what you're thinking. And one of the things you're wondering is, can we measure pollen levels? Well, that's a good question. And if we can measure pollen levels, can we compare them over time? Sounds like an interesting idea. And whether or not we can measure pollen levels, can we use measurements of temperature, humidity, frost days, etc., that we know affect our allergies and affect the pollens over time or possibly as proxies for predicting changes to pollen exposure? Um, and the answer is pretty much yes, although it's complicated. So first, let me show you a pollen and mold spore counter. And this is a kind of pollen and mold spore counter that is used all over the world. Many countries around the world have pollen and mold spore counting stations where people have been trained specifically to maintain these counters to be able to set them up appropriately and track what's passing through the air and then to be able to analyze that and report back on various websites that keep track of this information. It's a little bit complicated because not every station uses the same kind of machine, and they may track pollens at different times of the year depending upon their own season. So not everybody tracks pollens, for example, on Mondays and Thursdays. So when we use the data collectively, there can be challenges in trying to assemble it in a way that's actually accurate. You can see this information on the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, Immunology.org website, which is one of our major academic organizations that provides a lot of this information. And also, if you're interested to see if there are pollen counting stations near you, you can log on to this website, click on pollen counts, and find out what's in the air today. This slide shows pollen counting stations in the western United States as an example of some of the locations. There are pollen counting stations in most states, but not all. And you can see here, for example, that New Mexico and Wyoming do not have active pollen counting stations. So some of it depends upon how many people live there, but it also depends on the geography. So let's take a look at some of the data that has started to come in about what's happening with pollen counts and pollen seasons. Poole et al. looked at this information in Saskatoon, Canada, a place I would love to visit someday. They have a lot of problems with ragweed in the fall. And so over a 15-year period, they asked the question, what is happening with the length of ragweed pollen season? And they discovered that the average length of ragweed pollen season is increasing from 44 to 71 days. So that translates to what in the past has been maybe a month or a month and a half of pollen to almost two and a half months of pollen. So the pollen season is increasing and ragweed pollen in particular is a major problem for allergic rhinitis, asthma, and conjunctivitis. So this is no fun for people who suffer from this particular kind of pollen. 
European studies have indicated earlier start dates to birch and oak pollen seasons, and birch and oak are two of the major pollens, tree pollens, that occur in most European countries. They've also observed rising pollen concentrations associated with increasing temperatures. So Europe has very definitely noted some specific changes that we can measure. Now this makes intuitive sense. If we have increasing temperatures, we're going to have possibly fewer cold nights and warmer days. That might translate to earlier spring and later fall, which means longer pollen seasons and more pollen exposure, therefore. And this, we would think, logically translates to more allergies and asthma. It all seems pretty simple, but is it really? Does this hold up elsewhere? Let's take a look at a little bit more data. U.S. pollen trends are more variable, as noted by Chang et al. in 2014. They looked at data from these pollen counting stations, a variety from all over the U.S., not just in the West, but also in the Midwest, in the South, and in the East. And from those pollen counting stations where they could obtain good data that was actually usable, they found that birch and oak pollen seasons are starting earlier. And as with Europe, birch and oak are major tree pollens and causes of allergy symptoms in the United States. They also found that birch and oak pollen levels are trending higher in most locations. However, season lengths are actually different for birch and oak pollen across the different pollen counting stations. So for example, season lengths may be increasing in the Northeast, but they may be the same or decreasing elsewhere. So it's not quite as simple as equating warming planet with increasing pollens everywhere. Now, significant regional variations of climate change are known to exist, and in fact, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which provides us with much of our scientific data on what's happening with the planet, stated in their report in 2007 that land surface warming likely will be higher in regions with higher latitudes and altitudes elevations, if you will. So this image from Chang et al.'s article projects what might happen with oak pollen season length from the early 2000s to 2050. And I'd like you to home in for the moment on northeastern United States, that northeastern corridor, where the color changes from light blue to dark blue. This means oak pollen season length is likely to be longer as we approach 2050. And you can see in that northeast corridor that it definitely darkens from light blue to dark blue, even to purple, which is the longest seasons for oak pollen. That's not uniform across the country, however. You can see, for example, in Texas, they don't project much of a difference. In the southwest, however, some of those dark blue areas are actually lightening between 2004 and 2050. So is that because we will have more drought or drier weather? Um, will it be that plants are dying? How will we be able to estimate that in the future? And will these changes be accurate as estimated here? We don't know yet. But I'll leave it to you to take a glance at this map to see specifically for oak pollen how seasons might change 
as we move forward in the 21st century. We also don't know whether this data will apply to other types of tree pollens, grass pollens, and weed pollens. We just know for what was measured and estimated with statistical analysis. As with much of science and nature, there are complicating circumstances. As the planet continues to warm, will our local areas have more rain or less? Will we be more humid or will we be drier? We'll definitely have migration of people and animals, and certainly some animals are required for normal pollination around the globe. We'll definitely have new or changing varieties of trees, weeds, and grasses as the planet warms. And so we have a lot of variables here in what will actually be happening. Another question you might be thinking is, wow, with the increase in CO2 in our atmosphere, does this affect pollen levels? And in the last few years, people have started to look at this. On the right, you can see a lovely picture of timothy grass. And timothy grass is one kind of grass and a very large grass family that is found all over the planet. And by one estimate that was conducted in experimental conditions, airborne timothy grass pollen is estimated to increase by 200% with projected increases in CO2. So in that particular model, timothy grass, which can definitely be translated to that entire grass family, is likely to increase significantly with pollen levels. And in this image, we see a similar trend with ragweed pollen, higher atmospheric carbon dioxide levels equating with higher ragweed pollen levels. More observations. Air pollution augments allergic immunologic reactions, increasing evidence that this is true. So it's not just that they're a little bit involved with each other, but it's an augmented additive response. We know this specifically in children who live in areas where there is both significant pollen as well as air pollution, and this has also been looked at in laboratory settings. Higher ambient temperatures may create more allergenic, or by that I mean really more potent pollen, due to modified IgE or immunoglobulin IgE binding. So thinking back on that picture of the mechanism of how allergies work, it looks like that the higher temperatures may be associated with the ability of pollens to create stronger reactions. That's not good news. And some of you are familiar with this phenomenon of thunderstorm asthma. And as our planet warms and the weather changes in different geographic locations, we may see increases in thunderstorms. Now, how this works exactly is not quite certain, but it's thought that during thunderstorms, grass pollen in particular uh, absorbs more moisture. And then with the acute event of the weather, these pollens break open and smaller pieces of these pollens then can be inhaled directly into the deeper part of the lungs. And we have significant reports of severe thunderstorm asthma events all over the planet, whether Australia, England, the Mideast, United States, reports have occurred everywhere. Most recently, there was a severe episode in Kuwait several years ago where a number of people died or went to the emergency room for treatment of asthma exacerbation. So a lot of things happening in response to the changing climate. 
So our summary regarding pollens and allergic respiratory disease is many locations are experiencing higher pollen counts and longer pollen seasons. This effect may be larger in higher latitudes, but we need more data. Increasing atmospheric CO2 is associated with higher pollen levels, so it's likely to get worse as our CO2 atmospheric levels grow over time. Increasing temperature may cause pollen to be more potent, and it's important to realize that there's significant variability from one location to the next, depending on a lot of factors. You can find reports from single pollen counting stations, for example, in the United States, where they have not seen increasing length of pollen season or increasing quantities of pollen. So Mother Nature is very variable and we have the potential for significant changes, but not everyone is seeing it yet, for better or for worse. Next, let's take a look at what's happening with other allergens that are not pollen. Mold allergens, for example, can cause severe asthma and respiratory symptoms. Some of the worst asthma cases I have seen have been in response to significant exposure to certain molds, which can, by the way, occur either outdoors or indoors. Some outdoor dry molds can cause severe asthma, such as when fields are plowed after the agricultural season. But many of the molds that we're worried about in the future are indoor molds or molds that really propagate in wet environments, such as might occur with rising sea levels after hurricanes when we have significant floods, or as, for example, with floods that occur after severe fires when the land becomes degraded, or with increasing humidity that we're starting to see in certain geographic locations. Um, several of the molds that cause allergies particularly allergenic molds are listed there on the left and the picture of it is and the picture is of an aspergillus canidia mold can also serve as an irritant as we mentioned earlier like that pepper response or it can produce mycotoxins and mycotoxins are independent of allergy in most cases and an example of a mold mycotoxin might be aflatoxin such as you can find on peanuts where mold growth has occurred and some mycotoxins can cause severe health problems. Changing weather patterns can alter exposure to indoor allergens such as dust mites, cockroaches, and mice. If you have water levels creeping up where you live, chances are you're going to have increased humidity. Increased humidity means increased dust mites, and that means potential for allergies and asthma all year long. Now a few special considerations. Unfortunately, children under five years of age are particularly vulnerable. Their immune systems are just being formed, especially under one year of age. And we know that the immune systems are formed based upon the exposures to the external environment. So we are very concerned about what's happening with the planet and how the immune systems of the youngest among us are forming and being affected. They have higher respiratory rates. Children spend greater time outdoors. They have increased exposure to heat and pollution. And as we've just heard, this makes respiratory allergies worse. And of course, many 
come from economically disadvantaged families. This means also that they're less likely to receive the type of medical care that can help families understand what specific allergic triggers might be and how to both prevent them, prevent the allergic response, as well as minimize symptoms. Others are also more vulnerable. People with pre-existing Others are also more vulnerable, people with pre-existing respiratory conditions, and especially workers who spend time outdoors harvesting our crops or who must work outdoors for their occupations. What about these workers when they have significantly higher exposure to pollens and heat in the future? And homeless people, many of whom do not have the opportunity to go indoors to get away from pollens. And of course, many people can't afford air conditioning or air purifiers that can take pollens and other respiratory allergens out of the air. And of course, older adults have decreased ability to compensate for these types of physical stresses. Now, that all sounds like a lot of bad news, but there is good news, and I'd like to end with that. The good news is that solutions to climate change are also solutions to improve health disparities and allergic respiratory disease. So we've talked about that during this mini medical school series on the health effects of climate change. And it's true for almost all of these health conditions that the solutions to climate change also give us an opportunity to improve human health and especially to improve and especially to improve health disparities. With that, I'd like to close this discussion, and I look forward to talking with you about some of these topics. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.